While the offering continues to be collected, I would like to share a few things with you. First, on behalf of all veterans, present and past, we would like to thank you for taking the time to honor all our veterans today. Back in 2004, the World War II Memorial was dedicated to those Americans who served in the armed forces and to the civilians during World War II. That year, there was a retired Air Force captain who was also a physician who looked at one of his patients and said, would you like to visit your memorial? And he said he would, but he had no way of getting there. So this captain was also a pilot, and he had his own plane, and he flew the veteran to see his memorial at no charge. Fast forward to the end of the year of 2004, there were 11 pilots that stepped forward and flew 137 veterans to see their memorial, as well as all of D.C., at no charge. That was the birth of the Honor Flight Network. There are 127 hubs throughout 47 states. Eight days ago, Stars and Stripes Honor Flight flew its 25th flight from Milwaukee since 2008 for a total of 3,300 veterans. That's good. And you should clap. That's all because of you, all of you that have supported in so many ways on our flight. This past June, we flew, again, World War II veterans, and we added the Korean War veterans. And our own Ray Flaherty was on that flight. Ray, would you come up? We have a few slides we want to share with the congregation of your flight, and the first one is of Ray and his guardian. Um, each veteran has a guardian, and Ray was um, blessed to have his daughter Kay go with him on the flight. Starts at 4 o'clock in the morning that they're at the airport. The next flight, I mean, sorry, the next slide is um, the one stop that they make, which is at the Korean War Memorial, viewing the black granite wall. And the next slide will show what Ray has told us is his face etched on that wall. Lower right. It's awesome. Our next slide is the flight home, and the infamous mail call is presented at that time on the flight. And our next slide shows the wonderful homecoming parade for all the veterans. There are hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of people that come out for this parade. The atmosphere each time at this parade is electrifying to see the faces of the veterans as they greet the crowd. There's another element of the parade that is best described by the words from the producer of the film, Honor Flight, and he says that he feels humbled by the commitment of the community to honoring our nation's heroes. So, Ray, on behalf of this community, we thank you.
it's pretty amazing when the uh, when they put the pictures of the Korean War memorial on the internet. Ray told me it took only a few minutes. He went through that and he was shocked to see his own picture on the wall. And uh, so he looked in that wall and he found him found himself. And you can go on the internet, you can look, and there's close-ups like that. And so he found his own picture on the wall. We thought, what a what an amazing thing that that you know. Um, where in the Vietnam Memorial, you see the names of those who have died. Uh, the Korean War Memorial are some who did die, but also those who just pictures of those who served. And to have one of our very own, man, that we love dearly, um, be memorialized on that wall is, is quite an amazing thing. So, so to Ray and the rest, thank you so much. Um, right now what we're going to do is we are going to, um, in a moment, have the different flags from the different branches of service brought in um, to the, arm, the song of the Armed Forces Medley. And when the, um, the song is played that has your um, particular branch of service represented, they're going to bring your flag in and they're going to place it in one of the standards and the, the honor guard will bring those in here. And at that time, when if you serve, for instance, the first one is the Marines, the Marines will put, plant their flag. Um, if you served in the Marines or are currently serving in the Marines, if you would stand at that time when your flag comes in and join them at that area, from the congregation, we'd like that. So that we'll eventually get all the flags and all the people who have currently or have in the past served in the military to come forward and um, join the other people from your, from your uh, branches of service and uh, so giving us a chance to, to honor and thank you. So if we could start the Armed Forces Medley. To all of you who have served and are serving, um, this is a, a very small way that we can take a moment and tell you thank you. Um, it struck me as I was watching you get up that, you know, I know some of you are visitors and we're so glad that family and friends brought you with us, to what brought you here today, and, and know you're always welcome in our church family. But also I've looked at how many people are regular attenders in our church, that are, this is their every week church, and thinking, you know, in a church that's 250 people on a Sunday, the, the large percentage of people who served in, served or are currently serving and the ones that are not with us today because they're off in active duty. And we have a number of them who are off in active duty today from our congregation. And to think of that, that that's the percentage of our, of our church family um, that, have, that are giving so much, as Suzanne said, signs on the dotted line saying, this is your life. And we learned something about that when Josh went, that no matter what you want to do, the Army says go, you go. The Army says stay, you stay. And for all of you and all your branches of service, that you've made that kind of commitment to our nation, and, and you've made that kind of commitment to us. And so on behalf, again, of our church family, uh, we just want to thank you so much for who you are and what you've done, that you are a group of, of honorable people, and that you have given yourself um, to this nation. And we thank you so much um, for that from, from the heart of Portview Church. We say thank you. So I want to give us another, another hand to these folks. Now, Darlene mentioned in the pictures of, of Ray's honor flight um, that they had the mail call. And the mail call was a time that, as I understand from listening to some of your stories, especially if you were deployed and you were overseas, 
um, day before internet, that it was a time when you got your mail and you remembered your loved ones back at home. You never did forget them, but you got to hear you know, letters from home, hearing what's going on and what a special time that was for all of you as you've served. And, and we've tried to imitate that around here the last couple of years by having the kids of our church um, create uh, cards for you that are, that are going to be your mail call. And I received a really special um, thank you note from a veteran a couple of years ago who had the pictures, and he said, the thing I love the most about your service is that you did the mail call, and on his refrigerator with magnets were some of the cards the kids from the church made him. He took a picture, and he sent that picture in to the church. And so I made sure our children's pastor, Pastor Paul, this year for the kids said, look at what this meant to these men and women. And so they've, they've made you some cards, and in addition to that, in addition to the cards that they want to present you in a minute for your mail call, is also going to be included a star. And the star... Um, is off of a flag that has flown um, all in our in our general community, and there's in the stars a little uh, in the package of the stars a little saying piece of paper and it says this on it. it says I'm part of an American flag. You, the veteran, have given me the privilege and honor to fly over a home or a business in the USA, but I can no longer fly. The sun and the wind has caused me to become tattered and torn. Please carry me as a remember, reminder that you are not forgotten. So along with the cards you're making, these are flags that are stars cut off of flags um, that we it is legal and proper to do that, we found out, um, and uh, they're flags that were being destroyed. And so kids, if you'd come on in, why don't you come on in right now, kids, and let's do mail call for these guys and gals. You didn't have anybody in the in the military that was as cute as that giving you something um, but we know the things you received in the military, you received with great love. And, and you, these were also made with great love for you to show you how important, how important you are to us and to teach our children of our church how they should honor our military and be grateful for the country that we have. And so thank you for not only uh, um, receiving these, but also for helping us teach our kids um, what's really important in America. So let's give these guys and gals one more hand this morning. So our military personnel and our honor guard, uh, we dismiss you to uh, find your seat. Maybe our military personnel can find their seats first, and then the honor guard can retire the flags out when they have room. Okay. Uh, when Pastor Mark and I talked a few months ago about me saying a few words today, I, uh, uh, he asked me if I thought I could do this because he knows that some of the things in my past are a little bit painful. And I guaranteed him that I would try. So if I choke up a little bit later, please understand. But I'm not here to tell you war stories. If you want to hear a war story, see me after. Okay, be glad to tell war stories. Uh, what I'm here to tell you about today is a relationship with Jesus. Now, I probably knew who Jesus was before... I entered the military, but I don't think I had a relationship, a true relationship with Jesus until the day I'm going to tell you about, okay? Um, 
In order to tell you where I am today, I've got to go back to where I started. I was raised by a workaholic mother, an alcoholic father. We went to church twice a year, Easter, Christmas, the usual, okay? Maybe a few others. But I had a praying older sister. I had an older sister who was a Pentecostal lady who prayed for me daily. I had a pastor at a Pentecostal church in West Bend at the Assemblies of God in West Bend who prayed for me daily. I did a lot of crazy, crazy things as a teenager. Um, God led me through them all. Um, Seven or eight years ago, I wrote a book about my life. It started out to be a, a, a bunch of stories for my grandchildren, and they ended up being in chronological order, and they ended up being all put together into a book about a half inch thick. And I didn't realize how much God had watched over me through childhood days, through high school days, through Marine Corps, through young married life, until I condensed my whole life into a half inch thick. And I began to realize how God had worked in my life all my life, okay? I was a poor student in school, mostly, I think, because nobody cared. My parents were, 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 were working. Um, nobody really cared about me. So um, I did a lot of really foolish things, but I lived through them all, okay? Um, what I want to tell you today about a, a day that changed my life forever. When I graduated from high school, uh, well, when I was supposed to graduate from high school in 1964, when all of my friends were going off to colleges, military, trade schools, jobs, I barely had enough credits to walk through the front door. Um, but I decided I was going to go to work. I went to work at Mercury Marine, Mercury Outboard. A lot of you know where that is. And um, working on an assembly line, and then I met the love of my life, who's here somewhere today back there. You all know her. She was going to be a freshman in high school, and she needed somebody older and wiser to watch over her. <laughs> I went back to school to protect what I thought was mine, and uh, I graduated in 1966. Something or someone led me to the Marine Corps recruiter, and here I stand today. Changed my life forever. Now, how many of you ever heard the voice of God? I don't mean, I don't mean thinking that, you know what, I think God wants me to do this. I don't mean, you know what, I think God wants me to go to this place. I think God really wants me to take a new job. But the audible voice of God so loud behind you that you turn to see his face. I've heard that voice and that's what I want to tell you about, okay? I've got to go back a few years to tell you about that. About 50. Um, I enlisted in July of 1966. I was in Vietnam by that December. My family, my future wife, had an early Christmas party for me. I, I really suspect if we could talk to them today that they would say they never expected to see me again. My sister, for an early Christmas present, gave me a Bible. I still have it. I carried it in Vietnam. It made it home. I still have it. During my last week of civilization in California, six crazy young Marines sitting in a motel room in California 
with India ink and a stick pin tattooed across on our forearms. If you want to know more about it, it's never been removed. It's here. Okay. There were six of us. Uh, we were sitting in Anaheim. This was a sign, I suppose, that we were all going to get back together 13 months later and go to the same bars and laugh about our experiences in Vietnam. The next morning, we joined about 150 other Marines at El Toro Air Station in California, and we took a one-way trip to the uh, vacation capital of the world at that time, Da Nang, South Vietnam. Uh, we boarded a plane. We had a refueling stop in Hawaii. We got off the plane. We stood on the runway next to the plane, and a, gla and a, a grass-skirted young lady gave us a paper cup full of pineapple juice and a lay around our neck. And that was the last bit of civilization that I saw for 17 months. Uh, 24 hours later, the plane circled Da Nang, South Vietnam. As we went in for a landing, the NVA started shelling the runway. The plane quickly dropped on the runway and came to a stop. The emergency doors popped over, the parachutes popped out, and we scrambled to get off the plane. Rockets, NVA rockets, hit the, hit the ground. I was blown face down on the runway, took a chunk out of my chin on a perforated runway. I laid on my, on my belly in the dust and the dirt and waited for the shelling to stop. When the shelling stopped, I stood and I looked behind me, and Jay Ball, the first Marine with the tattoo on his arm, lay dead behind me. I can do this. We hurried to the closest sandbag bunker and waited for further instructions. A few hours later, a jeep pulled up in front, and the five remaining buddies were broken up as we all went our separate directions. I got in a jeep with five strangers, and we were, held, we were trucked to a little place called Dilok. I found Dilok on a map. Since then, Dilok is nothing. We were there to protect the village of Dilok. We were put in the supply tent. It was late in the afternoon. We were put in the supply tent, and we were told that tomorrow morning we would be attached to a fire team. We'd already heard the horror stories about the point man dropping, so we were really looking forward to being attached to a fire team the next morning. Early the next morning, the door burst open on the supply tent, and the gunny came in and said, Charlie is bringing an artillery priest across the river, and we need six volunteers to carry mortar rounds. Taking one step back didn't help because there were only six of us in there. <laughs> we went to the mortar pit, got 110 pounds of mortar rounds strapped to our back, followed the man in front of me, and we, we marched down to the river, laid in the sand along the bank of the river. And as the sun rose on my first day in Vietnam, Charlie was indeed trying to bring an artillery priest across the river. We opened up, and four South Vietnamese soldiers floated down the river face down. What we didn't know was there's an NVA division on the other side of the river. They opened up on us. They were hidden in the tree line. As, re as they returned fire to us, our company of Marines opened up. It was loud. I was confused. I was afraid. I knew I was going to die. I didn't know what to do. All I could think of was hiding. I was on sand. 
I tried to dig a hole deep enough to get my body into, which was impossible. But the fear was so intense that I had nothing else to do but thinking about that praying sister and think about a Jesus that I'd heard so much about and realized that that was my only hope. That was all I had. After several hours of rockets, mortar fire, we had F-4 jets come in and drop 500-pound bombs, several thousand rounds of small arms fire from both sides of the river. What was left of the NVA broke contact, disappeared. We were put on cleanup duty. I was in Vietnam less than 24 hours as I gathered up my first dead Marine and carried him out. I picked the Marine up and I tossed him across my shoulder. And the blood ran down my back. And the tears ran down my face. And I said, Lord, why am I here? I walked back to that hill at Dylock in total silence. I didn't know what to do. I thought about the dead Marines, the rifle fire, the explosions, the screaming, and then the silence. I sat and I picked through cold sea rations, but I didn't want to eat. I dug through my sea bag for something from home, and I found some pictures of that early Christmas party, pictures of Sandy, pictures of my parents. And I found this Bible, and I thought, oh, a Bible, I'll read. Open the Bible, and what does it say? In the beginning. That didn't help. As I thumb through this Bible, in the center of a lot of Bibles, there's a section headed marriages, births, and a page headed deaths. The word death seared in my mind. We lost 27 Marines that first day in Vietnam. The word death seared in my mind. I didn't know any of their names. There's only one word on this page, death. And you can see it if you want to see it after the service. I sat in a cold bunker and wrote the word, me. And I think I died that day. I think God entered my life that day and raised me. Over the next nine months, I was in a bunch of those firefights. I shot at people. I got shot at. God protected me. I saw people die around me. I saw a lot of dead and wounded on both sides. Some I knew, some I didn't. I stayed alive. I tried to read this Bible, and I prayed, because there was nothing else that could be done. Okay? I didn't realize it then, but I know it now. I was being looked after being taken care of by a supreme being that I had not known. But a praying sister and a Pentecostal preacher back here in the United States prayed for me. This is the day I want to tell you about. Beginning of October 1967, my Marine unit was engaged in search and destroy missions along the DMZ. The monsoon season was upon us. Marine intelligence captured an NVA officer with orders in his pocket. His division, his NVA division, was to blow up a bridge at Strong Point C2. It didn't mean anything to you. It didn't mean anything to me then. 
I knew I was going there. Small bridge, but with the bridge out, no trucks could supply the northernmost Marine units. With the monsoons, no choppers could supply the Marine Corps units. And that meant no food, no ammunition, no mail from home. Second Battalion, Fourth Marine Regiment were sent to reinforce the bridge. We were down to half strength for nine months of fighting in the foothills around Quezon. They sent us in to, to support the bridge. We dug in, two Marine companies on each side of the river, and we waited. Things were pretty quiet for the first two nights. We were on full alert the night of 13 October when the NVA, hit, when the NVA company hit us from the south. Where was I? Here I am. Um, we, were, we were down to about half strength. This is the after-action report, the official after-action report from the military archives. 25 artillery rounds, 40 rockets, and 135 to 150 mortar rounds pounded the hotel company position. An ambush squad posted in front of the hotel company reported an enemy force moving towards it. It immediately took the advancing enemy under fire. The squad leader notified the company he had three casualties and that he was seriously outnumbered. Captain Brill ordered the squad to pull back and called for night defensive fire to block the NVA avenues of approach. Captain Brill ordered Hotel Company to fire illumination and called in flare ships to eliminate the area. Hotel's sniper team watched the enemy as they massed only 50 yards in front of our position. We held our fire until the NVA reached the clearing only 25 yards in front of us. We opened fire, held the attacking enemy off the wire. Then it all went silent. The NVA had retreated, leaving behind many bodies, but they were far from finished. We stared into the darkness. We saw nothing. About an hour later, the NVA started shelling Gulf Company. Direct hits from RPGs and rockets took out several machine gun emplacements. They followed with a human wave attack from the north. The NVA eventually broke through the lines and overran Gulf Company, killing the company commander and his forward observer, as well as several platoon leaders. The battalion sent in a new commander, but he was killed before he could reach the position. Gulf was in direct hand-to-hand -hand combat with the NVA to keep them from reaching the command post. The NVA fought their way within hand grenade range of the command post before being stopped. What was left of the command post was moved across the river to within hotel company's position. Fox was ordered to the right flank to counterattack to force the NVA out of the perimeter. The NVA had breached our position. The order was passed, stay in that hole in the ground. Anything above ground is fair game. At each flash of incoming rockets, I could see NVA soldiers trying to cross a little footbridge across the river. I sat in the bottom of the hole in the ground and I prayed. That's all I could do. I was as low, both physically and mentally, as I could possibly have been. It was during those rocket rounds that God spoke to me. I heard an audible voice say, read Psalm 91. I don't know if I said it out loud, but I know my mind said, Lord, it's dark. <laughs> I want to tell you the incoming rockets and the incoming artillery were bright enough to not only find Psalm 91, but to read Psalm 91. I opened this book. I found Psalm 91. And this is what I found. He that dwelleth 
in the secret places of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. To me, that said one thing, and I paraphrased this with Royal Rangers for, for a long, long time when I was Royal Ranger leader. If you believe, if you truly believe, God has you under his thumb. It talks about though 10,000 fall at my side, God will save me. Rocket rounds were bright enough to read this little print. I can't read it today, but rocket rounds. Of course, my eyes are older. But rocket rounds led me to read Psalm 91. At daybreak, the remaining NVA broke contact and disappeared. The bridge was still standing. We'd done our jobs well, but the cost of American lives was high. The after-action report throws 21 dead Marines, over 150 wounded out of just over 300 at the bridge. That afternoon, Battalion Commander Major Bruno Hockmuth visited the bridge, renamed the bridge in honor of those Marines from 2nd Battalion, 4th Marine, who lost their lives in defense of the bridge. The battalion, our whole battalion, was awarded the Presidential Unit Citation, for combat at the bridge. Later that afternoon, we turned the bridge over 3rd Battalion, 3rd Marines, and we were moved to Dong Han, put in regimental reserve. We spent 42 days in close combat. Now, I want you to understand, this isn't a war story, okay? I'm not here to impress you with a war story. This is a salvation story. That's what it took God to hit me with to realize that I needed Him. Some of you, it took gentle prodding. Some of you, it took a two-by-four across the back of the neck. Some of you, some of us, it took something a little, a little heavier, okay? This is a story about how Jesus will find you in your deepest despair. I don't care where you are. Jesus knows where you're at physically, emotionally, and spiritually, okay? Just ask him. He'll come into your life. I just passed my 47th anniversary of that battle. Uh, I still don't know why God chose to spare me. I returned to the world in May of 1968 to find out that the other four Marines with the tattoo on their arms never made it. I'm a sole survivor. I came home to see Sandy. I was home in time to see my wife graduate from high school. I was home in time to thank that Pentecostal preacher who prayed for me. Before he died. I was home in time to thank that Pentecostal praying sister that prayed for me. Forty-seven years later, I still wonder why. Why did God choose to spare me? There's some things I guess I'll never understand. Pastor. The other day when Roger and I um, got together, we were talking about the service. He keeps referring to a Pentecostal preacher, referring to a guy named Tom Hodge, Pastor Tom Hodge. And I took off my bookshelf for him a Bible that Pastor Tom Hodge gave me that I used to preach his funeral. That he had asked me he was dying of cancer in his late 80s. And um, he at that time we were pastoring in Marquette, Michigan, and he was 
had pastored in Nagani, Michigan. And he said, I want to preach my last sermon at my funeral um, up in Nagani. He goes, there are a bunch of, what do you, how do you put it, a bunch of hellish people up there or something like that. They don't know Jesus, and I want to preach to him one more time. So he gave me his Bible, and he said, when, he goes, I want you to do my funeral. I want you to preach it for me up, up in Nagani, Michigan. And he gave me his Bible. So the other day when Roger's in my office, I, I got that Bible out. His name is written in the front cover of it. You never know how your paths will cross. You never know what will happen. You know, Roger talked about how there was a day when he probably knew about Jesus, um, but he didn't really know him. Then through a series of events, he came to really know the reality of Christ. He heard, he had something happen that maybe never, maybe most of us never do. He actually heard a, he heard a voice from God. Won't go into the whole story, but I had one time in my life when the same thing happened to me. I heard the voice of God, literally so strong, I turned around to look to figure out where, where a person was talking to me and there was no person. And uh, the reality of that story is that God goes to great lengths to reach us. There was a time when Roger had a, a praying sister, a praying pastor, and, and they knew the Lord and had probably shared everything truth about God's word to him. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard that before. And all of us, or most of us, have been in that spot. But there was a time when, through, for, for him, through a series of horrific events, um, he was ready to, to hear. And the Lord spoke, and he responded. And he said, I don't know why the Lord has preserved me through all this time. And I think the reason the Lord preserved him through all this time is very simple. He loves us. He loves him. And uh, he had a plan for his life that he wanted to have him be a person who would then share about what Jesus can do in a life. And, you know, there's, there's times in our lives when that happens to us, where one moment we might say we know about something, but then we really know it. And uh, for Roger, that moment was in a foxhole defending a bridge where he said, I know about Jesus, but then he heard the voice of God. and He says, now I know Jesus, and it changed his, his life forever. And you know what, I don't know where any one of you is at today, spiritually. I don't know where, where your lives are at, what, what side of that bridge of life you might be on. That bridge that says, I, I know all, you know, I've heard all that before, but it's never really been real. Or that side where you go, yeah, you know what, it's become very real to me. But this is what I know. If God loves someone so much, you'll preserve them through all of that. Um, that's amazing love. And that the Bible tells us this, that God's no respecter of people. In the context, what that means is that he doesn't think of one person as more important than another. And so if he would love Roger that much in a foxhole in, in South Korea, he loves you that much in a church in Port Washington, Wisconsin. And if you have any doubts about the fact that God loves you, um, I want you to know today that this might not be a foxhole, but... God has orchestrated this day for you to let you realize that he loves you that much. And that it's as simple as calling out to him and saying, Jesus, I need you to come into my life. That's how it begins. And there's a whole life of walking with him after that. But it's as simple as saying, I need you today. Like Roger didn't come into my life. And so as we end our service today, in a moment we're going to retire the flag. But I just want to end um, by praying. And in my prayer, I want to give you an opportunity just to by yourself as I pray, if, if that's you, if you're in a spot that Roger was in that day in that foxhole, you asking Jesus, just say, Jesus, today's that day. 
I, I sense something today, God, that's different. That today, something inside of me is saying, this is for you. Well, if that is, that's the same God that spoke to Roger in a foxhole is speaking to you right now, very quietly in your heart, saying, I love you and I want you to be mine. So would you join me in prayer? Just bow your heads with me this morning. Lord, thank you so much for loving us. Thank you that you, in some amazing ways, prove your love. And Roger took the time to write a book to really just start off his stories, to write down just his life story. And what he saw was you were there all the time. You were even there when he didn't know it. Well, Lord, that's true for all of us. Your word says, for you so loved the world, God, that you gave your only begotten Son, Jesus, that whosoever believeth in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. And so, Father, thank you that you love us that much and you sent your Son, Jesus. That, Jesus, you did something for us that we could not do for ourselves. That your word says that we are lost lost and and, and dying because of sin. But you love us so much that you said, I'll I'll take that sin away from you. And Jesus, you did. You went to a cross and you died in our place. You said, you deserve punishment for sin and I'll take the punishment so that you don't have to receive punishment. You said that's how you want to express your love to us. And so Lord, right now in just this closing moments of our service today, for everybody in this place, service person or not, as we're in this place, God, help us to have as real of an encounter with you right now as Roger did that day in that foxhole. To know that your love is that real. That your voice is that clear. That right now, just in the quietness of our hearts, speak to us. And let us hear these words. I love you. And that you don't want us to run away, but you want us to run toward you. So this morning, if it's that day, first time, that you want to really run towards Jesus, you can simply ask Christ for your life. You can pray something like this, dear Jesus. I know that I am separated from you, and I need you. And today, I ask you to come into my life. Forgive me of all the junk from my past. Wash it away and make me brand new. I want to be your child. I want to walk with you. And I want to just know you as my Savior and my Lord. So on this day, I surrender my life over to you. I ask you to receive me, cleanse me, to make me brand new. And from this day forward, I want to walk with you. prayed that in your heart this morning. I want you to know it's very real. God loves you. He's got a great plan. As we conclude our service this morning, I'd like to invite all of you to stay with us after the service. We'll have a reception immediately following cake and coffee, spend some time with people who really do appreciate you. Don't run off. 
If you have questions about what Roger talked about or what I've just talked about, I'll be right here for a while. Just come and find me and we'll spend some time talking. When you feel dismissed to go, you're free to go out there, drink some coffee, eat some cake, have a great time. And as you're, as you're leaving, the um, ushers will have some small flags. These are flags that were flown at the gravesides of fallen veterans and they've been collected and we have permission to, to give those to you but we ask this if you're going to receive one of them only take one if you're going to display it you're going to put it somewhere where it can it can be remembered as as uh, this flew over a, a grave of a person who served our country so take one of those along they're, they're free for you if you just take those as a way to celebrate as a country what we have the freedoms that we have and to remember those people that have, have really um, lived and died so that we can be free. Would you stand with me this morning?